want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Uh, if you have a red pew Bible in front of you and you want to turn there and follow along, I invite you to do so, page number 920 in the red pew Bible. Uh, where have we been? Where are we now? Where are we going? Uh, we have been uh, in the last eight weeks walking through the book of Malachi. Uh, prior to that, we had been in Matthew, so now we're coming back to Matthew. My habit is to, when I take a long book of the Bible, like Matthew, to walk through, take it in sections, and then take a break, and then go to an Old Testament book, and then come back uh, and pick up the series where we had left off. Uh, this is a new unit of thought in uh, Matthew's writing, and uh, uniquely, he pairs the, his gospel uh, in sections. He, he, he pairs the teaching with Jesus besides some acts, uh, actions that he, he does. And so, as you think through uh, the book, there's actually five sets. So, if you think about ten units, but couple them together, five sets, and uh, in the first set, Matthew 1 through 4, we, we get the introduction to who Jesus is. We hear about His lineage. We hear about His baptism, His outstanding character, uh, overcoming temptation in the wilderness, and His call of His first disciples. And as this is happening, crowds are starting to form, and His uh, prestige as a rabbi is becoming known, and that first major block transitions from his acts to his teaching, and we find him going up on a mountain, teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount to crowds. Um, and he's taught them. We took a long time going through the Sermon on the Mount. You could probably read through it in about half hour. If he projected a half hour message, he then came down from the mountain, and the crowds continued to, uh, to follow him. Uh, something unique begins to happen as, as he comes down from the mountain. He, he goes into these acts. Ten, ten miracles of healing take place. And uh, as he's doing these miracles, he's also beginning to call the crowd because the crowds are becoming so vast, he, he, his time frame is becoming shorter he only has three, out, three years to be uh, with his disciples, and he needs to call the crowds and focus in on a select group. And so, he limits those, and we saw him getting into a boat and then going to the other side, and he, he limits who can enter the boat with him. It's reserved for those who will respond to his teaching and follow him. And uh, after a series of ten miracles, uh, he, he begins to switch again now, and we come to chapter 10. I know we're not in 10 today, but we're getting close to 10. And he switches gears and he begins teaching again to this select group of people, his disciples. And he begins to teach them what it means to be on mission, to be seeking and going to save the lost what's involved with it. And so, our next 
time of meeting, our next series of sermons, are going to have this characteristic of being on mission as God's followers and how that would look for us. And so, let's, uh, this, this text I asked you to turn to is just the prelude that's transitional to chapter 10, and it's much more than a transition. It deserves its own sermon because we get deep insight into Jesus' ministry heart. Jesus was the friend of sinners, and yet, yes, He was strategic to limit so He could focus on equipping disciples who would go after Him, but one of the most important qualities that we see in this text is the missionary heart of Jesus. We see His compassion, and we are intended to see in this text, I believe, that compassion for people leads to effective prayer. Compassion for people leads to effective prayer. And I choose all these words carefully to highlight the essence, I believe, of this paragraph. And as we walk through it, I hope to show you uh, with clarity where I derive these thoughts from. In verses 35 to 36, Jesus took time to think about people. Let's read the text. I haven't done that yet. Uh, just very short, uh, about four verses here. Verse 35, follow along with me as I read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. I see in verse 35 through 36 that Jesus took time to think about people. There is a signal change in verse 35. Matthew restates very succinctly the kind of the character of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's Jesus is going about, He's teaching, He is proclaiming, and He's healing, and there's crowds. This is transitional, but it's also designed to cause us to reflect upon His interactions with people from the crowd in the previous two chapters. In the previous two chapters, you see um, close-up encounters with Jesus. We've gone through these, but we may have forgotten over the past eight weeks some of the people that Jesus interacted with who were a part of the crowd. There were people who um, were hurting. But Jesus, in the process of healing some of these people, was also healing their souls. And in these ten miracles, Jesus was, was teaching about the organic and spiritual complementation that exists in us as people. There is a union of body and spirit that makes us who we are. 
We are a living soul. We are a human soul cast in the image of our Heavenly Father as He exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God cares for our spiritual as well as physical being. I pause here just a minute to to reflect on this truth that people are a lot like God in the sense that we share similarities. And Jesus taking time to think about people and their deepest needs, not just limiting it to just their raw physical need, they also have spiritual needs that affects their whole being. And I bring a pause here because Historically, the church has recognized the significance of parallel between, <coughs> between God and man's psychology. St. Augustine developed a view of the Trinity based upon the psychological similarities between man and God. And the ability to think about things is what sets us apart from being animal. This is a characteristic, actually, that reflects God's own being. To think about ideas, we must have a mind that can remember ideas. We must also have an intellect that can reason. And we must also have a will that can choose. Augustine observed this. He said, but in these three, when the mind knows itself and loves itself, a trinity remains, the mind, love, and knowledge. And I pause here to to reflect theologically because it's taking the time to think and consider It's a natural process of who God is. It is also a natural process of what makes us people. You see, we're not animals. We're designed to be thinking about those around us. And Jesus himself stopped to think about people in the crowd. Verse 36, we see here in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, but they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Really remarkable, because it indicates that Jesus saw the crowds, but he also had experience with people individually. He, he saw a leper on the uh, in the crowd who needed to be healed, he, a leper who had no ability to have relationships because he was an outcast. He saw a desperate centurion watching his loyal son slip away. <coughs> Peter's mother-in-law, two demon-possessed men, a paralyzed man, a daughter of a ruler, a woman with a flow of blood, two blind men, and a deaf and a mute man. (coughs) 
It's a cross-section of humanity. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus stopped to think about people in the crowd. He thought of people in the crowd as a representative of the whole. He didn't distinguish and diminish the value of each individual person. This week I had the privilege to pray before the Honesdale Council meeting. It was a very interesting night. First, it was really nice to uh, visualize the counselors who we pray for in our member prayer guide. And also, it was really interesting, too, to um, hear them individually speak and to kind of get to understand who they are, observe their care and their concern for others and how they try to think about other people. Our mayor in town brought forward a resolution. He, he um, expressed concern that a council members would be careful with their comments regarding people in the LGBTQ community who come for public, for public comment. Now, naturally, that would try drive me bonkers to hear something like that. And I don't always do this well. But I noticed that he nearly broke down as he was articulating some of the statistics, concern for people who might be tempted towards committing suicide. He suggested that this group of people saw an increase about 40% in suicide attempts in the last year. And he, as he read this data, the report, which I disagreed with, suggested that the cause of this was an increase in anti-LGBTQ legislation in America. Now, that's a logical fallacy because correlation does not actually equal causation. It also groups everyone in a crowd and doesn't evaluate people as individuals to assess what really is going on inside their own hearts. Taking the time, though, to think about what our mayor said allowed me, though, to understand that he had a deep concern for people in dark places. That's a horrible place to be, contemplating suicide. Horrible. And it also allows me to illustrate a couple of points that I believe is corollary to what we're seeing about Jesus, seeing a crowd, but then also thinking about people. And that our culture wants to drive us towards crowds as groups. A crowd or a group of people only identified by markers can be dehumanizing. It's as dehumanizing as talking about people as a group of deplorables. It's from another angle. Every person is a person no matter how small. They're all made in the image of God. 
and they deserve to be considered carefully before we try to help them. I think we need to be careful that we do not put people all together in same groups and crowd them into containers of identity markers. People are people. Now, I don't have to agree with opposing views on how to help people, but we need to be thinking about people as people, like Jesus did. He took time to think about hurting people. Jesus saw people who were harassed and they were helpless. Verse uh, 36, we go on (coughs) in this text. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. This two-word phrase is literally translated mangled and cast down. Mangled and cast down. In, in the context of shepherding like sheep without a shepherd, that's a really, really significant word choice that is a little bit below on a translational level, but I bring it out because shepherding apparently knows the concept of sheep being cast down. Uh, sometimes people are referred to as cast sheep in the Scriptures. Now, I'm not a shepherd. I had to resource a shepherd like Philip Keller from Australia, uh, who in the 70s wrote a book about shepherding and looking at Psalm 23 from that perspective. He describes in that book how heavy, fat, long fleece sheep (coughs) will sometimes lie down to get comfortable in a little ravine or a little crevice. And as they're laying there, it it may roll just slightly enough that the center of gravity shifts and their short little legs can't find the ground anymore. It's kind of cute, but it's actually very dangerous because the anatomy of a sheep, their front stomach, can't process the methane gases properly. And so, if they're unattended and left for a long period of time, their, their stomachs fill with gases and may cut off their blood flow circulation. And if, in the, if they're not reached within a period of hours, that sheep may actually die. That's a serious situation. Very serious situation. People are like sheep. And secular society will tell us lies. They will tell us, well, if you do whatever feels good to you, then that will be what's best for you. If you allow your desires to run in this direction, you may actually find your best life. The problem with that, though, is that secularism is showing us a way we can have happiness outside of God's direction. God Himself knows what's best for us, and if we follow His leading, like a sheep following a shepherd, He will lead us to green pastures, 
sun-filled meadows. He will take us through that dark valley so that we will have a place of flourishing. Secularism tries to group identify us because they want a market. They want us, like, to be fit into a widget system, take away our created identity of being made in God's image and having a male and female binary. God said, let us make man in in our image, after His likeness. So, God created man in His own image, and in the image of God, He created them male and female. You think through this. Our secular society, and I'm, I'm kind of still responding to what I observed on Tuesday evening here, about the kind of entrapment that occurs from being categorized it may feel comfortable, it may feel like this little, little little valley, I can just kind of slip in here and nestle myself in, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're trapped. You're told if you just kind of enter into this way of thinking about gender and sexuality, and after the exhilaration of that fad wanes, you feel like you're stuck, that there's no other place that you can go because now you've been defined. And the roots of depression are never as superficial as identity markers, state legislations. People are way more complicated than that. Now, I I don't know if you've ever taken the time to watch people. It can be fun, but it can also be disheartening. One of the best places that you can do that is in a large airport, right? You can group group people together by how they present themselves, right? You can kind of watch people. There's, you know, like this, there's this, there's these peppy group, uh, preppy kind of people, you know, the business class, they're running with their, they get, and they don't have a pager anymore. You know, they're kind of running through the airport, get the next flight. Some are jocks, they're going to the next game. Some are on beach vacations. People dress grunge, people do all kinds of stuff. It's, it's like, you know, they're trying to fit within a kind of a category. And as I think about this, it's really important for us to, and as we think about other people, we need to not just simply say, well, that's the way they are. We need to be thinking how Jesus thought. There are a lot of mangled, and there are a lot of cast-down people. It's just written all over them. There is a lack of joy. There's listlessness. You can just see it in their eyes. They're overcome by the consumerism of our world. They need Jesus desperately. And so taking time to reflect, I believe, produces a compassion in one's heart for those who are hurting. Uh, It's the last part of verse 36. You see Jesus taking time to reflect produces a compassion. Uh, verse 36, he, he, he's, he's, um, he had compassion because uh, he took that time to evaluate. Now, the Greek word that's translated compassion in English is a very strong emotional word. No real English word can do it full justice because of its intense emotion, its, its idea of, of being moved with pity from the very core of your being. It's sympathy, it's, it's compassion, it's, 
feeling all, you know, you know it's like coming out of yourself towards, towards somebody. <laughs> I uh, was talking with someone before the service, and I could see they moved with compassion because of the carnage that's been inflicted on so many down in Florida over this last, last week. Taking time to reflect produces compassion for people. Mission is not motivated by disgust for people's sin. We don't, we're not motivated to mission by, you know, saying we need to, like, get another one in God's box so He can rule them. Or motivating factor is not just like, like, so we can reclaim America again. That's, that's not a good motivation for mission. A real motivation for mission is a compassion for those who are helpless, those who are caught and snared. When we look around us, we see a society that is completely oppressed by its freedoms. That may sound strange, but honestly, those who are barely making it in our world today are the ones who are not motivated to improve themselves to be a part of society. They're just as free as free could be. Instead, they're overloaded with all kinds of freedoms to gratify the urges, beastly urges that exist within them. That's a really harsh situation that we have here in America, to be so free that we have hurt people. Rather, being, rather than being repulsed by the mass of humanity that we might see in an airport or a Walmart or a Central Park Honesdale, we need to take the time to consider, why are they mangled? Why are they cast down? Is it because we have become some, so free that we are so much filled with despair? We have so much social isolation. Why is this? And our hearts need to be moved. Compassion for people, I believe, leads to effective prayer. Verse 37 to 38. Verse 37 to 38, we, we, we come to that crux and turn. We saw the description of compassion, and then what does it do? Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Now, this may actually be a surprise to some of us. Wouldn't it just make more sense to get busy? Like, pray? Come on. No, 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 no. no this, is, this is very productive, especially when you have genuine compassion for the people that you see around you. Because the, the need is so vast, you, you have to have realism. Verse 37, you know, he says, you know, there's this, this harvest is huge. <clears throat> it's plentiful. But their labors, they're just, they're just not, it's a supply-side economics, folks. There's not enough laborers. What's, what's going to happen? 
That can become overwhelming, though. And I think it's important for us to realize that statistics are not the ultimate. The living God is ultimate. I have begun to realize, I wish I had learned it earlier, a more realistic view of ministry. Realism gives us recognition that we alone cannot reach our community for Christ. We are not the only church in, Green, in, in Honesdale, folks. We need a healthy set of multiple congregations in our community because we don't exhaust the relationships in our community. The relationships that I have are going to be different than that which Mike Lyle has. They'll, they'll be different than Tim, Tim Capshul has. They will be different than Lane Jones has. There, we need healthy churches in our community to expand and to multiply. I was reminded of the beauty of fellowship and partnership in the gospel this past week, Tim Capshaw, uh, knowing uh, two, a few weeks ago, uh, we had like a little pastor's gathering on a Thursday in prayer time together, and Tim, knowing that we were going to be having the picnic together that Saturday, uh, shared uh, something that had happened, I guess, over the summer. Uh, he, had, he had someone come to his church that had been nudged to go to his church through our live stream. And uh, everyone has reasons for why they choose to go to one church over another or whatever. And, but at the same time, as I heard that, I was like, that's really cool. And I think. He watched our live stream. I guess I had mentioned Tim Capshaw in Honesdale uh, Community Church or something, and he thought, well, I'll give that one a try. Who knew? But what a great opportunity. We're all in the same vineyard. We're all in the same field. There are many, many hurting people in the world, and we are not capable of reaching everyone by our own methodology, our own winsomeness, or even our own style of presentation. It's the Lord's harvest. It's not our harvest. If the laborers are few, then what are we to do? We are to pray. We're to pray. Verse 38. Verse 38, it's, it's this pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Rather than being depressed by the vast sea of people, the vast crowds, instead we are to pray earnestly that He would send out now, the word for send out here is a really remarkable word picture. It's the Greek word ekbalo, which is the word that means exorcism, to cast out demons. That's really interesting because what Jesus is saying is not that we should see greater recruitment of deacons and elders and Sunday school workers necessarily. Jesus is saying that Christians 
would be shaken awake and come outside of themselves, that their lights would shine, that they would be, as it were, the Spirit cast out of them, the, the right Spirit cast out of them, that others see, hear, and believe. That's a beautiful picture in my mind. It's like having a fire lit underneath of Christians. Like, cast them out into the work. Like, as you go into the world, you are to be going, preaching, and teaching, and baptizing. And the word worker is also encouraging. Because it's a very simple, it's a very simple word. It is, is the word, it's very unappealing. Because you don't hear, like, when you're preparing your resume for an employer that you really want to get into, you're not going to... Unless, unless you want manual laborer, that's not the first, and people will dress that word up these days. But this is the idea, like, that God would send out manual laborers. That's people with not a lot of skill. And that's why it's so encouraging. If we open our mouths and proclaim the joy that we have and the reason why we are serving God, it will create an effect that's encouraging. You don't have to go to seminary to be an effective missionary for Christ. You can be one where you are, wherever you are. That's encouraging. And the prayer is for simple, obedient workers who will go out and gather in what has already been accomplished by God, who is Lord of the harvest. It's beautiful. What we are praying for is that God would ignite the spark plug in the hearts and lives of others. And so, compassion, I believe, for people leads to effective prayer because if you're really genuinely thinking about people, you're going to understand that this is a work of the Holy Spirit within them. You may be a vehicle of hope for them. And you need to start praying. It will cause you to start praying if you're thinking about people individually. And you'll suddenly realize, I can't do it all. In our members' prayer guide, we include readings from John Bunyan's book on prayer. And he reminds us that we ought to be praying with sincerity for those things which God desires. He he desires that the souls of men would turn to Him. Why wouldn't He bless that which He delights in? We, we look to all kinds of methodology to, like, get them in the door and to do all kinds of things, and we, are, we just need to blow the doors out and go out and be the church. He reminds us if we pray with sincerity... That's what the word earnest means, sincerity. Effective prayer is sincere prayer. And I know people in this room that I have prayed for before I even knew you, and you're here. That's a beautiful thing. That is a glorious testimony to God's working in ways in which we cannot even see and gives us strength and hope. It's encouraging because God uses normal people to grow His church. 
So Jesus took time to think about people. He then directed us to pray for laborers. Take time to think about people. People may drive you crazy. They sometimes drive me crazy. And, and it could be that there's reasons why they're driving you crazy, like they've got baggage from past experience. They're, 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 they're really edgy. They can't commit themselves. Like, well, why, why is that? Have they been burned in other places? I don't know. Maybe. Take time to study people. There are many people who are mangled and they're cast down. They're harassed. They're helpless. And as you think about people, then pray that God would ignite His church to reap the harvest. Jesus' ministry heart is foundational for the church. And so I look forward in the weeks ahead to walk through His teaching on the mission of the church and the role that all Christians have of bringing joy to this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for time in Your Word this morning. I pray, Father, that, Lord, that You would send us all into the harvest. Thank You so much that You have made it possible for us to hear the good news ourselves. I pray, Father, that we would not have that light under a bushel, but that we would have it exposed for all to see. Thank You for the opportunities that You present to us in a week. They're not accidents. They're opportunities to, to share love for one another, for those who need Christ. So I pray, Father, that You would work within our hearts to change us not into a, a self-absorbed community, but that we would be an other-considering community. And we ask for this for your glory, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.